So, I've got my computer back, which is great, really helpful, and um, I want to talk now about evil and suffering in Jerusalem. I said really this morning was fairly upbeat, if I can put it that way, in terms of Jerusalem's world-affirming perspective. And that's quite deliberate on my part. I think it's really important in talking about what's wrong with the world that we don't lose sight of what's right with it. I've deliberately organized it this way so that we understand the powerful and important ways in which Jerusalem's idea of the goodness of the material world contradicts, stands in tension with many other worldviews, both ancient and uh, modern. Those worldviews see the, the physical creation as a problem to be overcome in various different ways. Jerusalem does not. But having said that, uh, the biblical literature would, be, would have to be considered naive if that was all that it said about the world. Because it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that the world also contains, and we experience in it, both evil and suffering. Um, and so the very truthfulness of this tradition would be in question, I think, if it had nothing to say about all of that, convincingly, in the context of the overall goodness of things. And so now we want to think about the other part of that equation. God creates in order that creation should flourish. In fact, though creation suffers in various ways, we do too as part of that creation. There's evil in the world as well as good. Evil is bound up with suffering in various ways, although I want to talk about that in just a moment. And that reality, too, is one that all serious religions and philosophies have had to grapple with, right? So if you're seeking to explain the world, you need to be able to explain convincingly the question of evil and suffering, right? That's just what you have to do. So you'll find that all of these serious worldviews through time have addressed this uh, question, and Certainly, the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, has, both of those have as well, uh, deriving their views in various ways from this mosaic, Yahwistic perspective that I've been introducing uh, to you. Uh, within that Yahwistic tradition, we tend to talk about the problem of suffering. That's often how, how the thing is uh, framed, the problem of evil why is this a problem? I mean, if you think about it, it could just be a thing. It doesn't have to be a problem. It could just be the way things are. So even to call it a problem already implies a worldview, which goes back to my everything's a package deal from, from last evening. Um, I mean, I find it rather interesting when people say to me in the same breath, I don't believe in God because of the problem of evil which doesn't make sense if you actually think about it, because unless you believed in God, why would there be a problem of evil? It would just be a thing, you see. So it's a very interesting thing. So um, 
this, is a, this problem of evil is very much tied up with the notion that there is a good God who loves creation and wishes it to flourish, but nevertheless, there is evil and suffering. That's why it's a problem. It seems to contradict the very reality that you began with. Um, and uh, there are various ways of uh, uh, handling this in, in the tradition. I'll just skip past this. Woody Allen, rather humorously, puts it this way. How can I believe in God when just last week I got my tongue caught in the roller of an electric typewriter? Well, that's a rather silly, uh, but, but it's a rather interesting thing. I think myself that he is parroting a certain view of this, whereby everything bad that happens is part of the problem of evil, and we're going to talk about that. So it's not quite as silly or trivial as, as it appears, I suggest, actually. Uh, a more serious version of this, though, would be the ancient Christian writer Boethius, if there is a God, why is there evil? And if there is no God, how can there be good? That's a pretty classical Christian formulation of uh, the question. So, I want to talk about how Jerusalem handles these questions. And I want to begin by making a distinction that may surprise some of you, but I think it needs to be made because I think Scripture requires that we make it, and I think our own reason and experience also chip in, as it were, to make us make this distinction. I want to make a distinction, as we begin, between two kinds of suffering in the world. The suffering that genuinely does arise from evil, and the suffering that does not. Okay? Uh, I think it's very important to make that kind of distinction. By way of getting into this, I want to begin not with an Old Testament passage on this occasion, but with a New Testament uh, passage. The story in Acts chapter uh, 27 and 28 of Paul's journey by sea as a prisoner from Caesarea to Rome. In this story, we read that even at the beginning of this sea journey, it was difficult because we're told there were strong headwinds. Later, a storm arises. The ship takes a violent battering from the storm. Ultimately, Paul and his companions are shipwrecked on Malta, where Paul, putting some brushwood on a fire, is bitten by a snake. So he's not having a good day. There's a lot of suffering in this story. But as you read the story, none of it is attributed to evil, interestingly. The suffering in this story, if it arises for any reason, it is because of the very poor judgment of the leaders of the sea expedition in the first place, right? They, they just made a bad call. They left when they shouldn't have, and they kept on going when they shouldn't have, and you know, stuff happened, and, and that's what it is. The storm in this story is simply doing what storms do. And the snake is simply doing what snakes do. Human suffering arises in this story from being in the wrong place at the wrong time, more or less. And interestingly, the Maltese observers of this don't get that point. Very interesting to read the story later. Go back to it. The first assumption they make is that Paul must be a murderer because he escaped from the sea, but
but he's just been bitten by a snake and he's not going to live and he's got his just desserts. That's their first assumption. Paul is a murderer. When he doesn't die, they change their minds and proclaim him to be a god. Right? It's, it's, there's no middle here. It's an either or, right? Either he's a terrible murderer or he's a god. They have two explanations and they're both wrong because they're both attributing moral dimensions to the suffering, right? Paul is neither a criminal nor a god. He's simply a human being who from time to time gets caught up in suffering. And the suffering in question in this story appears to be intrinsic to the way the world works. God's good world works in this way. Think of another example which makes a similar point, I think. John chapter 9. Jesus is asked a question about a man who was born blind. You remember the story? Rabbi, people ask, who sinned? You see the assumption? It's not did somebody sin, it's only a question of who. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Only two alternatives once again. Both of them involve somebody acting wickedly. Either the parents or the man. And Jesus replies just prior to healing the man, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Very interesting story. Um, It does not appear from these stories that all suffering arises in the world because of evil. Some of it is just there. At least that's the idea I'm putting before you for your consideration. Now, if you think about our human experience in general, you can also see that this is likely to be true. The suffering that arises from being the victim of torture certainly has evil at its root. But the same cannot be said for the suffering that arises from accidentally placing one's hand too near a naked flame. Moral considerations do not come into that. It is in the nature of fire that it burns. Yes? And my hand will inevitably hurt if I place it near the flame. And indeed, it's a jolly good thing that it does, because if it did not, I would leave it there, perhaps, and serious damage would ensue. In fact, Some of you in the medical professions will be aware that there is indeed a rare genetic disorder using the acronym SIPA that results in an inability to feel pain and is enormously problematic to those who who have have this illness. Um, The mother of one young girl who suffers from this very disease says, some people would say an inability to feel pain is a good thing, but no, it's not. Pain is there for a reason. It lets your body know something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. I'd give anything for her to feel pain. End quote. Another example. In a world in which there's the law of gravity, which is a jolly good thing, otherwise you'd be floating around this auditorium rather than sitting there. But in a world where there is such a thing as the law of gravity, if I step off a high cliff... I am going to fall a great distance and cause myself suffering and perhaps even death. And that, I suggest, is not the result of evil. It's just the result of living in a world where there is such a thing as the law of gravity. In fact, more than that, 
the law of gravity is part of what makes the world good and provides us all with the ability to flourish. It's part of the goodness of the world that there is a law of gravity. It's part of what the language of good, I suggest, in Genesis 1 means. And speaking of Genesis 1, have you ever considered the implications, I'm sure you have, of verse 28 of Genesis 1? We are given tasks to do in Genesis 1. Human beings are, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it or the other creatures. Now, those verbs, rule and subdue, they're pretty active verbs, pretty uh, aggressive verbs, actually. These are verbs used elsewhere in the Old Testament of kingship, of military conquest. They're often associated with force. And this implies that in the good world, before evil even gets an entry, there's work to be done. It requires effort. So if your picture of the Garden of Eden is the lounge chair beside the pool with the martini, I suggest that Genesis 1 is not consistent with that picture, right? Uh, God creates a good world, but apparently it is not devoid of challenges and problems that human beings must overcome, ruling and subduing, in order to live a blessed life. And if you then ask, well, what kinds of things are these? It's not hard to imagine what they might be. What do people have to rule and subdue? What did they, back in the ancient world, have to rule and subdue? Well, they had to push back and keep back jungle and forest in order to carve out agricultural land. They had to keep wild animals away from domestic ones. They had to contain rivers and redirect them into irrigation systems, and so on and so forth. It's not hard to multiply examples of what rule and subdue uh, look like. Uh, bringing up children, you know, pretty hard work, right? Just innately so. I, I, don't th- I mean, evil comes into it, obviously. But, but even if there's no evil, it's just jolly hard work, right? It requires effort. Ordering these young person's lives as God orders the world. Planting and harvesting crops, that's hard work. Whether or not you have the thistles and thorns of Genesis 3, right? It's just hard work. So when Genesis 3 goes on to talk about the suffering that does arise from evil in the world, I don't believe that it is trying to offer an all-encompassing account of suffering in terms of evil. So what I'm encouraging you to do is to somewhat dissociate those two ideas. Just for a moment, see how we go, okay? I'm suggesting that not everything we call suffering is attributed in Scripture to evil or makes sense if you do that, actually, in the end. Some of the suffering I'm proposing in Jerusalem arises just because God made this kind of world and not some other kind of world. A world of physical limitation, for example, and so on. Physical world, a good world. Now this is really important because many of those who have wrestled with the problem of evil in the Christian tradition have been accustomed to refer to two kinds of evil in doing that. They talk about natural evil and they talk about moral evil. But they're both evil, right? So natural evil, and moral evil. Natural evil would be things like um, 
Earthquakes, for example, natural evil, and moral evil would be things like torture, the example I used earlier on. The assumption being that earthquakes represent as much of a problem for those who believe in a good God as torture does. That's the implication. They're, they're both deeply problematic, apparently, for believing in one sovereign good God. And in the Christian tradition, this can sometimes be taken quite far to the extent that you often get the impression that the world of our experience now is nothing like the world as it was once back then. If you really push this idea, you get two worlds actually, the original creation and our world, and the two are utterly unlike each other. They operate at a fundamental level in utterly different ways, right? That's where some people have gone with this. And uh, this represents a, what I would think of, I'm suggesting to you, is a rather, it's an overplaying of the fall card in, in Christian thinking. So, having lauded the reformers earlier for some good things they did with Aristotle, let me now give you a couple of examples of some really bad things they did with this notion of the fall. Martin Luther lists among the consequences of the fall useless trees and herbs, thorns and thistles, lice, bedbugs, fleas, and destructive powers of water and fire. John Calvin adds the inclemency of the air, frost, thunders, unseasonable rains, drought, hail, briars, and noxious plants. It almost appears that everything that Luther and Calvin do not much care for in the world is a result of the fall. That, that really is how it appears as you read these texts and other ones. Everything they don't like is attributed to evil, basically, on this view. No space at all is allowed for suffering that is the inevitable outcome simply of the fact that God has made this world in this way and not another world in a different way. Natural evil is as problematic as moral evil. And I simply doubt that that is correct. I do not think that is a helpful way of thinking about the matter. And one of the reasons that I doubt this paradigm is that various scriptures tell us that the world of our experience now is exactly the same as the experience of those before us at the beginning. So, if you read a psalm like Psalm 147, we're not going to actually read it, just for time, but if you read this psalm, if you read Psalm 104, and remember, these are compositions from later in the story, reflecting on creation as it is experienced by the people worshiping, right? These are worship songs for the present. As you read these psalms, you will discover not a hint of the idea that the entrance of evil into the world has visibly affected how creation functions. In fact, creation in biblical thinking is not a past event. Creation is something that's still going on now. God is now still creating. He is the one in this psalm covering the sky with clouds and supplying the earth and so on. There is no disjunction 
The world hasn't be, wasn't good one day and then bad the next day. These these very dichotomized alternatives. It's simply not how Scripture looks at the matter. I think it's an imposition, actually, from outside, from elsewhere. Now, I'm going to leave that idea sitting there just for you to think about. You're welcome to ask questions about it later, of course. I want to move on and ask a related question. Part of the issue here, if what I've just said is true, then what is Genesis 3 actually about? Because that's the consequent question. What is Genesis 3 all about? Well, it's still about the entrance of evil into the world, for sure. But I don't think it's about the beginning of all suffering in the world. That's the implication of what I'm saying, right? So evil enters the world and greatly complicates it. That, I think, is the biblical perspective. It doesn't squish it, overcome it, make the world utterly different. Evil greatly complicates things in our experience of it. And if you think about the big picture, the package idea, you'll see that actually this must be true because to say something different from that would imply that evil is an equivalent force in the cosmos to God. Right? It would imply that evil has the ability to overcome God and that plainly cannot be true. It's not how scripture looks at it. So to give such a big place as it were to evil is evidently a kind of category mistake within the Christian story. So, moving on then to Genesis 3. What is Genesis 3 about? The passage opens by facing the reality of evil directly. It introduces us to a creature of God who is surprisingly, it seems, not under God's sovereign control. That's how it appears at the beginning of the story. A creature who is not under human dominion either, by the way, A creature who's above himself, as it were. Apparently already gone bad, this creature. A shadowy creature, not clear what it is. One of the wild animals that God has made, but but as the story goes on, seems to be more than that. A serpent, not a good set of associations with serpents in the ancient world. We could talk about that, but I'm going to leave that hanging there. Serpents don't get a good press in Egypt and places like that. Uh, they have divine associations in other cultures. This serpent doesn't. He's a creature, obviously, right? Because God is God and creation is something different, right? So all of that's consistent. Uh, We don't expect to meet such a creature, really, in this story of this kind, really. We are not surprised because we've read it a million times, but try to imagine you've read Genesis 1 and 2 and then you hit Genesis 3. You're going to be surprised, How does this fit with what I've just been told, right? And what it implies already, of course, is that there's free will in the cosmos. It implies it. It doesn't hit you over the head with it. It just implies it. Because here's the creature who's obviously chosen to go bad, right? And that's exactly what the human beings are now going to be confronted with. How will you use this freedom that you've been given? Obviously, this world involves freedom. It's one of the fundamental features of it. So how are you going to use that freedom? What are you going to do with it? So to put that in a different way, answering Boethius' question, where does evil come from? Evil in the biblical way of thinking arises from something good. It arises from the misuse of, of, of freedom. 
It's not a thing, as it were, independently of good. It's a distortion of good. It's the absence of good, actually, in many ways. It's not a, a thing in itself. It's the absence of something, the absence of good. So uh, this serpent, we're told, is crafty. And he asks a very crafty question. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Could be viewed as a friendly question to begin with. That's a very subtle question. The allusion is back to chapter 2, where we're told the first human beings are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And that's what's crafty about the question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What God actually said was precisely the opposite. And here it says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So the question reframes the reality. That's the nature of temptation. If temptation were that obvious, it wouldn't be temptation, right? The essence of good temptation is the subtlety of the matter. Not that I'm advising you on how to tempt, you understand. I'm just saying that that's the essence of it. The vocabulary of God is about freedom and blessing. The vocabulary of the serpent is about restriction. You see how he's reframed this to make it look like restriction rather than freedom? And so an appropriate answer to this question would be, you are misquoting God, O serpent, go away. That would have been the right response. Uh, Of course, that's not the response. Uh, What the woman actually says is, yes, God said you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Interesting, that's not what God said either. God said nothing about touching. So the woman is now getting into the mindset that maybe it is a prohibition after all. She's moving over to the dark side already in this response. And then the serpent moves beyond subtlety. You will not surely die, which is in direct contradiction now to what God said. And here's the alternative vision. Your eyes will actually be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The human beings accept this this vision. And of course, that's the beginning of the trouble basically. So uh, in, in Jerusalem, evil enters into human experience because of the human misuse of the freedom that God has given them to behave as moral beings. It's essentially the grasping of the wisdom of an adult uh, in, a, in a state where they haven't reached yet. I don't believe we should read the Genesis story as having the tree of either tree there as hurdles to trip people up. Sometimes people read the story and, you know, the idea of the trees are there just to see see if. But actually, I don't think that's right. I think that both trees are regarded as capable of being eaten from at the right time. It's the circumstances under which the tree is approached that's the problem here. It's not the reality of it. The consequences of this are no doubt well known to you, but let's just rehearse them very quickly. They eat from the fruit of this tree. They don't enter into this wonderful experience the serpent has given the impression they will. They realize that they're naked. They hide from each other. They hide from God. So a great disruption has entered into their experience. They blame each other. 
The man blames the woman and God, actually. The woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit. It's a rather pointed little, uh, little bit. The woman shuffles the blame onto the serpent, and the serpent, of course, does not have a leg to stand on. Boom, boom. Um, the first example in history of passing the buck, as somebody has said. So blame, shame, inward turning, turning away from relationship between God and ourselves and between ourselves and each other. And then there are some curses mentioned which are best thought of simply as consequential statements. Okay, you've made these decisions. Here's what will follow. There's going to be an ongoing battle between the forces of the serpent and human beings all through time. That's going to be going on all the way through. There's going to be disruptions to the way things work relationally, I think. Um, this, is the, uh, this is my translation of Genesis 3. Genesis 3.16 is often translated as if what happened here was a biological change, that, that women prior to the fall experienced no pain in childbirth and afterwards they did. I think that's a great mistake. I don't think the vocabulary talks about childbirth at all. What it's talking about is the painful circumstances now in which children are brought into the world. All these relationships are screwed up. And now life is harder because children are being brought into a dysfunctional world, right? And the man and the woman are at each other's throats. They're involved in a power struggle. Everything is more difficult, including agriculture. But I think the language is about the breakdown of relationships. It's not really about biological or whatever change. I think that's just a, a mistake which actually has caused other problems as you pursue that line through. So, all sorts of problems arise because of this, this way of approaching the thing. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with each other is fractured. Our relationship with creation in general is a mess. And, you know, like everything else we're doing, that's not just the description of Genesis 3. It's a description of our lives, it seems to me, as I see it. Good, but marked by dysfunction to some degree or another. I think that's the, the view of Genesis 1 through 3. So, just uh, uh, summarizing all of that as I've done then, broken relationships, the human aspiration to be God rather than to be the image bearers of God leads on to significant dysfunction. And in saying all of that, Genesis 3 wants to say at least two general things about evil in the world. Both of these are important to the biblical worldview, and they dispute the version of things given by other worldviews. The first of these things is that in biblical thinking, evil is not an eternally existing reality alongside and equal to God. That was an ancient view, dualism, all right, evil and good, more or less balanced, and that's how the world is, always been, always will be. The best modern analogy is Star Wars, the dark side of the force, the light side of the force. Nobody knows who's going to win, which is why there'll be endless remakes, by the way. 
It will go on and on and on because there will always be another Death Star. So it's part of that philosophy. It's dualism. And Scripture says, no, that's not right. Evil has not always been an eternal reality. God made creatures. Creatures went bad. That's where evil comes from. And secondly, the evil is, on the other hand, not created by this one God as an intrinsic aspect of the cosmos. So evil is not a power equivalent to God, but nor was it created by God. It arose out of a departure from the good by creatures. Those are very distinctive things to say vis-a-vis certain other ways of looking at the question of evil. Now, I want to say a bit more about that just to try and get some clarity. And um, I'm going to take a number of other ways of thinking about evil and suffering in other worldviews just to try and help us get distance from what we know so well, to see it as not inevitable or self-evident, and to understand the radical nature, therefore, of Jerusalem's view. So I'm just going to take you through a number of other ideas, beginning with the ancient Near East. So we talked about the gods the other night, and uh, you've seen these uh, pictures before um, from last evening. In the ancient Near East, out of which this biblical literature emerges, we have gods, many of them. The power of these gods to do good is limited, and part of the reason for that is that the power of each of these gods is constrained by the other gods. You have many gods, they're battling with each other, that's going to create limitations, right? I mean, also, they're part of a cosmos they didn't create, and that creates limitations as well. So for both those reasons, the ability of the gods to do you good, even if they want to, is limited, right? So the notion of of goodness is a far more constrained thing in the first place. And you find in ancient Near Eastern literature, worshippers hoping that the gods might do them good, but of course, that's very much part of the bargain You have to keep them happy if they're going to do you good. You don't really know what keeps them happy, and so the whole thing is rather uncertain, right? So the notion of whether you will experience the good is a very fraught issue in that kind of animistic polytheism, and we talked a little bit about that last time. There's certainly no idea in the ancient Near East that the gods are committed to human beings, Very far from it. So you don't get ancient Near Eastern gods making covenants with people, for example. Uh, They're not interested in doing it. And even if they were, they don't have the power to to deliver on it. They're not sovereign. so, So how could you depend on that? So that's the general idea. In that world, then, there are a couple of options for explaining evil and suffering. First of all, Evil might just be there, in the fabric of things, built into the parameters of the cosmos. The gods did not create those parameters, therefore they can do nothing about evil, right? It's intrinsic, it's more powerful in the end than the gods individually. The problem in that case would be a lack of divine power, so you can't really depend on the gods to do much about it, right? It's just there. That's idea number one. Idea number two, 
The gods themselves might not be terribly virtuous. And that, in fact, is very much the ancient reality as well. And if you, you probably don't know much about the ancient Near Eastern myths, but many of you will know something perhaps about the Greek myths, and you will remember how much trouble ensues for human beings as a result of the gods fighting among themselves in the Greek myths, right? I don't like Odysseus. Bing! We'll just send him to the other end of the Mediterranean for a while. The gods are all fighting, and they're vain, and they're very self-interested, and that's why you can't expect any good from the gods. Either they don't have the power to do it, or they don't have the will, they don't have the desire to do it. And so, this leads to a rather gloomy, anxiety-ridden outlook in the ancient Near East with regard to evil and suffering. It's an utterly different idea from the Jerusalem idea, and once again, it raises the great question, where on earth does this unique countercultural idea come from out of that environment? It's inexplicable. It's just inexplicable unless you think the biblical story about Moses meeting Yahweh is true. It seems to me it's otherwise inexplicable. Um, let's think about Greece. We've met this fellow a number of times before, uh, Plato. The thinking of Plato on evil and suffering and goodness is quite dualistic. Plato conceives of a universe in which being coexists eternally with non-being. So it's a dualism that's found widely in Greek philosophy, actually. Being and non-being are the fundamental realities that exist. They are there before the god, the craftsman, the demiurge, as Plato calls him, who is the person responsible for crafting the cosmos. So evil and good, being and non-being already exist. This God, small g, comes along, constructs the cosmos. He's therefore mightily constrained by his working materials. Right? The stuff is presented to him, and he does his best, is the best that can be said, for the demiurge. He takes the forms, he combines them with matter, he creates the world as best he can, but in all honesty, it's a deeply flawed world that, that really you want to escape from as soon as you possibly can. The best analogy in modern movies, I just like playing with this so you'll get movie references. You may remember Richard Attenborough in Jurassic Park. He does his best to build a good world on the basis of impressive plans, but he can't quite pull it off because of what he's got to work with. That's Plato's demiurge, basically, right there. Limited craftsmen, and then the lesser gods that come along as the demiurge's workmen are no better. They're the ones, by the way, who place individual souls in individual bodies, very much to the detriment of our soul's ability to grasp reality, thereby confronting us with the problem of escaping from it. So you get the package again here. So there are kind of gods, but they're very much ancient Near Eastern kinds of gods in Plato. There are those kinds of, very much like us, but a bit more powerful. Um, constrained by pre-existing reality. Um, and this means 
of course, the, the Platonic view of the thing is very far away from the Jerusalem view of creation, right? Utterly different again. And you can see, therefore, why it would be a problem to try and combine Platonism with biblical faith. It seems an obvious problem to us in retrospect. It's a pity it wasn't more obvious back in the day, actually. It would have been better had people been a bit more smart about that. Some of them got it. Tertullian got it, I think, to a very large extent. Uh, But people like Origen certainly did not. Let's go right out of our comfort zone into China and think about Confucius and Confucianism. Um... So in the West, we have these dualistic perspectives, people like Plato, but uh, philosophies in the East tend generally to approach the whole thing in a rather different way. And in Confucius's case, he has a very distinctive idea of good and evil. Uh, Confucius is looking backwards. He's a conservative. He's trying to retrieve things from the past as a way of making the present world better. He looks back nostalgically to the Zhu dynasty of the 12th century BC. In that ancient society, heaven is considered to give the righteous Zhu monarch, the king, the mandate to rule. Society is organized hierarchically beneath this king. The supreme deity authorizes the supreme ruler and cosmic order results. If you think, if you're having deja vu, Yes, you're right, that is the ancient Near Eastern view, basically, now found in China. The whole Eastern thing is a very large um, phenomenon. It starts in Greece and goes east, basically, and doesn't stop till you hit the Pacific. So this is very much the same kind of worldview, in fact, as the ancient Near East. Confucius's idea is, that's the ideal society. We're not in a great place, we've lost a lot of that. Let's go back and retrieve it. Uh, Let's go back to the fundamental principles of that period. And he defines what those principles are. The key one is li, which is respectful ritual, doing things the right way, ritualistically speaking. The heart of which is filial piety, the importance of respect for parents and elders and those in authority. And Confucius' idea was that if his contemporaries would perform the proper rituals and ceremonies, they would be transformed into people of humane goodness, right? Um, In fact, this leads to the notion of the way, the Tao that you've probably uh, heard of in earlier times, a religious path. But Confucius is really not interested in gods and spirits and so on. This is a much more uh, humanistic kind of vision. It's about our own posture, our own way of living. And uh, evil and suffering on this view originate because people turn away from the Tao. And the way of solving the problem of evil and suffering is simply turn back again. It's a very simple matter. There's no idea of endemic evil that somehow constrains us and prevents us from being good and so on. It's very much in your own hands. And particularly, it's the responsibility of the king and the aristocrats to set a good example, and thereby the masses will follow along and everything will be fine. 
So it's self-transformation through education and proper behavior, essentially, is what Confucius uh, is about. So obviously, it's, it's similar to the biblical idea in the notion that there is a way that we ought to be living, but the way, the Tao, is not personal, not, it's not a good and transcendent God, it's not something outside creation, it's something within And the main problem is ignorance, which is characteristic of Eastern religion, actually. If you ask yourself in Eastern religions, what is the main problem human beings have? It's not really sin, as it were. It's simply ignorance. So enlightenment or education is the obvious solution, right? Very different way of looking at things from the Jerusalem perspective. And just to illustrate that point briefly, let's just think about Buddhism, which of course arose in India, so we're further west than China, but Buddhism is now a very major world religion, certainly in China as well. Uh, In the teaching of the Buddha, my whole existence involves suffering associated with the changing conditions of physical life. Suffering arises simply from change, from the impermanence of things. The heart of the problem is my individual failure to grasp that there is no such thing as the permanent self or soul. That's an egotistical illusion. My major problem is that I believe that I am I, essentially. This leads on to selfishness and egoism And those things cause suffering, cause suffering. The solution is to cease to cling to the self. And if I can manage that, I will attain ultimately nirvana, a blessed state of escape from all of this toil and trouble. I achieve that by following the noble eightfold path, which is designed to help me bring about this transformation. So nirvana is the freedom from suffering which arises when the causes of suffering are obliterated. What's the main cause of suffering? It is illusion, right? It is certain beliefs I may hold that are actually not true. My senses, once again, are utterly unreliable in terms of discerning what is true and good. So the main problem is ignorance, The main solution is knowledge or enlightenment. That's true of Hinduism as well. Evil and suffering are simply aspects of the illusory world that I should try to leave behind. Again, I said last evening we were talking about Karen Armstrong and Carol Jaspers and the idea that all religions basically say the same thing. I've just spent 20 minutes on one topic and you immediately see how ludicrous is the idea that these religions say remotely the same thing about anything, actually. These are all very different alternatives, and they can't all be true at the same time, right? Uh, but they do, inform, they do inform the way life is lived, the way society is constructed, the values, the ethics, the politics of the world in which we live now and not just historically. And what I want to say in closing is simply revisiting Jerusalem, that Jerusalem dissents from all these views. 
Good and evil in Jerusalem are not simply to do with illusions. They're not simply to do with how things appear to us as if appearances were profoundly deceptive. The real world in Jerusalem is reliably communicated to us through our senses. And in this world, good and evil do in fact exist, objectively speaking, and have to be accounted for. So that's a massive departure from the typical Eastern view. What does good mean? Good refers in Jerusalem to what is like God, the one true personal God. Evil refers to what is not. It's a very simple matter. The, 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 the measuring stick, if you like, of good and evil is the character of the one true God. Good and evil are distinct realities, but they're not eternally distinct in Jerusalem. Evil has not always existed alongside God. It is by no means equal to God. Evil arises from within God's creatures, whether human creatures or other ones. Evil arises when creatures turn away from God, turn away from the good, and they go on to bequeath this damaged inheritance to their descendants in various ways, because into our dysfunction our children are born, and then so on and so forth down the line. And so it's not just a personal matter. We're shaped culturally by these realities as well. In Jerusalem, evil originates in this personal, creaturely rebellion against God, in the failure of human beings to trust in the goodness of God, but to believe the serpent instead, to be suspicious of God, the human desire to be God is the root of suffering in Jerusalem, and that is unique and utterly distinctive, in fact. Called to cooperate with God as image bearers in ruling creation, we have instead sought to rule each other and have failed entirely to look after creation. That's the biblical diagnosis. I find it a compelling diagnosis as I consider myself and the world around me. It's not just a matter of ignorance, although obviously ignorance comes into it. Much more importantly, in biblical thinking, evil is a matter of will and desire. It's certainly not a problem of cognition, right? It's not just a matter of thinking wrongly, although that is part of it. It's got to do with will and desire. It's a deep-seated reality, and it absolutely will not be defeated simply by education and good habits, although there's nothing wrong with education and good habits. But in biblical thinking, evil is a far more intransigent reality than in Confucianism, say, or for that matter in Islam, which I haven't mentioned much yet, but in Islam as well, it's a simple matter. You're on the wrong path, turn to the right path. And so in that, to that extent, Confucianism and Islam are rather similar, although in most respects they're very, very different. And I want to submit to you that this perspective, this Jerusalem perspective, therefore, is utterly distinctive. Uh, and uh, hopefully, by doing this compare and contrast exercise, something of that distinctiveness has become clearer. Um, and, of course, it's a very important matter for the reasons we talked about last night, because if our analysis of reality is flawed, 
all sorts of consequences will follow from that. So which of these perspectives actually is true becomes really, really important, and many consequences follow from our decisions about that question. Okay, I will stop there and uh, hand over to Tony in the first instance. Now, uh, well, it's a lot to absorb, isn't it? It's wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm just still processing it. Uh, and in terms of uh, our agenda, we've got time for questions, which we can either do now or we can do t uh, the questions when we come back after lunch. So it's a bit of... Uh, I want to throw that to you. Would you rather just uh, break now, absorb this a little bit, and then when we come back after lunch, which I said we're bringing forward to about 2 o'clock, because I often find that as you, you know, absorb things and chat, questions perhaps formulate a bit more clearly, and then we could start off with a question time. Who would prefer doing that? Hands up. Who would like to do after lunch? Who would like to do questions straight away? Okay, well, let's mix it up. Eh? Both then. Okay. We, let's do Good. both. Those who want to ask questions straight away, let's, uh, let's ask some now, and then uh, we, can, we can ask some after lunch. Peter, I'll just hang on a second. We'll give you the microphone. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I just have a question about Paul talks about the ultimate enemy being death. Mm -hmm. What relation has death, I mean, to evil coming into the world, mm -hmm. um, if you'd like, prior to the if we looked at it historically, yeah. but prior to the fall, mm -hmm. was there death? And, and, yeah. and what, are we, what is he talking about if there was, I guess? Well, he's talking about death as we experience it now. Fundamentally, that's what he's talking about. And the concept of death in Paul's thought and in the rest of Scripture is multi-layered, and that makes it difficult sometimes to know exactly which kind of death's being spoken about. You can have spiritual death even though you're alive, for example. And then there's bodily death. And one of the questions that arises immediately in the Genesis story is, when they're told on that day you will die, what does that mean? Because you will have noticed that on that day they do not, in fact, die. Nor do they respond to that statement on that day you will die, by saying, what do you mean die? Which is interesting. And um, this implies to me that the natural state of things is in fact to die, and has always been so, and that only if something else intervenes will that not be the ultimate reality. Namely, only if the eating of the tree of life does not happen at some point. Um, so, in answer to your question, I think that what happens actually in Genesis 3 is that death becomes really problematic because of evil in a way that was not true before. And I think it's possible to think that death without evil would simply be an uncomplicated passing from this reality into the next one. 
Uh, I'm not convinced that Genesis 3 means to say there was no such thing as physical death before there was evil. And indeed, the geological record and the archaeological record would greatly complicate that point of view because clearly there was lots of death before there were even human beings. So it's even more complicated if you transfer this to creation in general. Um, This issue too has been complicated by the Greeks because as a result of Plato's thinking that who we are fundamentally, we are immortal souls fundamentally, currently unfortunately trapped in physical bodies. So we were originally in the world of the forms, we're now in our physical bodies, our destiny is to return there. And because of the whole Greek Christian dialogue, that idea got embedded in some Christian theology, although you don't find that idea in the early church fathers, interestingly enough. It's a later idea. It really arises when Origen and the Alexandrians get going. It's not a feature of Christian thinking prior to that point. On that notion then, death itself becomes a result of the fall, right? So who we are fundamentally is immortal. We lose our immortality in the Christianized version of this, and later we get it back, as it were, in a way. Um, But actually, if you read the New Testament, what I find interesting is that Paul, in talking about immortality, does not say who you really are essentially will come out when Christ comes back again. What he actually says is when Christ comes, you'll be clothed with immortality. The metaphor is of something coming from the outside on top of who we physically, materially are, as it were. Um, So when you remove the Greek components, as I think we should, because there's no hint in Scripture that we were ever innately immortal beings by nature, quite the reverse, I think. Only God is said to be immortal in Scripture. Once you remove that idea, I think it's possible to see that we're dealing with a complicated reality here and that Genesis 3 is not necessarily about physical death as such. And that's my conviction, actually, at the end of the day. So, so if I could just, because uh, I think that's quite a lot in that answer, isn't there? <laughs> and we might absorb that one. But certainly one of the corollaries of what you've said, if I were to go to the positive side, is if you actually take the Greek view... Um, it diminishes the achievement of Christ and the resurrection Yes, significantly. Well, it does. And for a Platonist, it must, it, there's no way you can fit this into a Platonic worldview. And this is why I'm so suspicious of origin. I mean, there's lots of reasons I'm suspicious of the church father origin. But one of the reasons is that as you read origin, although he says he believes in the resurrection of the body, the impression you get at the end of the day is that that is only an intermediate stage on the way somewhere else. Because to a Platonist, the ultimate destiny is to be reabsorbed into the one. It's to your soul to be reunited with where you came from. And bodies have no part in that. So Origen, being so thoroughly Platonic, he finds it very, very hard actually to find a proper place for the resurrection of the body. So the whole notion of Jesus being truly incarnate truly being resurrected in the body. These are fundamental arguments between the early church and the heretics. And there's a reason why these are the issues that are being discussed. Because to the Greek mind, the notion that God becomes incarnate is impossible. 
And the notion that the body should be resurrected is absurd. And you're dealing with an utterly different view where the soul being the only really important thing, the body is, the body is a secondary matter, right? Whereas from Genesis onwards, right through to the end of Revelation, in biblical thinking, a human being is a soul and a body. It's not a soul, unfortunately, burdened with a body. The very, to be a creature of God is in fact to be an embodied person from a human point of view, right? It's fundamentally important, actually, and it completely affects your understanding of Christ's work in the atonement and everything else. Yeah, I mean, so, I think as a younger evangelical Christian, although nobody said it to me, my understanding of redemption was it got us back to pre-fall. Right. Uh, it just sort of equalised things back to pre-fall. Right. Rather than um, a massive extension beyond not Genesis 3, but even yeah. Genesis 1 and 2. Yeah. Um, well, if you're a Greek, then the cosmos is innately perfect to begin with. It cannot be otherwise. It's like a, the circle is the mathematical perfection, right? The cosmos is already perfect. You can't do better than perfect. So where else are we going to go except back to the beginning? So in the Greek view, it's fundamentally cyclical, and it must be. Logically and philosophically, it must be cyclical. The biblical view is not at all cyclical. Revelation doesn't take us back simply to the garden. Revelation takes us onwards into this garden city. It's a, there's that kind of idea that all the accomplishments of humanity are caught up in this new Jerusalem. Um, and of course, to bring the cyclical view into our Christian thinking means, among other things, that everything that's true about the end must also be true about the beginning. And so you get people reading out of their eschatology their view of creation, and it completely messes up the ballpark, actually, at the end of the day. It's just not a wise thing to do. Now, I'll be coming back to this in a subsequent talk because I think we have, to, we have to be very careful about this. I don't think we should have in our model beginning, middle, back to beginning. I think we should have as our model beginning God-ordained journey to God-ordained end, somewhat messed up by evil, which kind of complicates things. But because God is God, it's not a big deal. And in fact, we're going there anyway which is a far more, I think, biblical way of conceiving the big picture. Because God gets to be God on that picture, and evil gets to be what it is, which for all of its horribleness, actually is still a very subsidiary, marginal entity in the cosmos, really. Right? The goodness of God is, and this is amazing, because the ancient Israelites did not live in our comfortable surroundings where we're rather immune to a loss of ordinary human suffering through the ages. They lived in a very difficult world, a world where it was hard to survive, where there were imperial enemies and so on. Think about how much of their discourse is about the goodness of God and the wonderfulness of creation. Think how deep that conviction must have been to sustain that perspective in those circumstances. Um, so 
the notion that God is good and God is sovereign and God is all-powerful and this story will have a happy ending because God ordains it so, that's the fundamental set of biblical convictions. And evil, yeah, evil's a problem and it's unpleasant and it can wreak havoc. But only in the meantime and only to a certain extent. Um, So I actually think that the Christian story is fundamentally optimistic, actually, which is not the impression I got either as a teenager, I have to say. I mean, the version of the Christian story I got was the world is pretty much lost in sin and gloom, and by getting out of bed in the morning, you can probably only make it worse. (laughs) So stay put. A Scottish Scottish Presbyterian Calvinist. You. And again, nobody told me that, but that was the impression I kind of picked up. And it was a very, very negative view of the world and of my capacity to do good and to change things. At the end of the day, it was a very small view of God and a very unbiblical view of God, I would now say, actually. Um, So putting evil and suffering correctly within the frame of the big story is massively important and has enormous implications, even for how you read individual biblical passages within the whole story. And what you've done as well, which I'm, I'm sure you will probably develop, is a very important point that I think what you've done is you've subordinated evil to a more minor play than most people make it because the story involves change, which is turbulent, which is dramatic, yeah. uh, and, and you can't actually put e- evil uh, uh, across the top of it as the explanation for all the ups and downs in the journey. No, you can't make it a totalizing explanation. And just to say that out loud, it should be obvious you shouldn't, <laughs> Right? I mean, evil cannot be a totalizing explanation in a Christian worldview, right? And in fact, I think the whole evil card, the, 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 the fall card, is played way too much in many of our articulations of Christian theology. And because it, it refers to everything, in the end, it doesn't explain anything in a way. It becomes so overused that you're not even any longer discriminating, as it were, between things that really are evil and things that are just inconvenient, for example, right? And, um, and in some versions of, of modern contemporary Christian theology, we, it seems to me that we are almost accidentally back in a polytheistic animistic world because evil spirits and Satan is under every bush and under every tree and everywhere to be seen. And I'm thinking, I thought that was what we were supposed to be reacting against, right? Is evil really a, a, a dualistic Star Wars, dark side of the force kind of thing with that much power in the world? Does Scripture give you the impression that Satan and his legions have that much power in the world? I don't think so. Not globally speaking, yeah, for those who give those powers their allegiance, for those who simply give in and go along, of course, absolutely. But uh, if you think about the book of Job, the interesting thing about the book of Job is that Satan is a player, but he's on a leash, is he not, in that book? A very, very clear leash. Book of Revelation... No contest at the end of the day. The Son of God rides out on his white horse and the whole thing's over before anything gets going, 
and Satan's in the lake of fire and it's done. You know, there's no dwelling on it. It's not as if it's very significant in the end. It's painful and certainly messes our lives up and causes us grief and terrible pain and has caused horrendous things to happen in the world. We shouldn't underestimate the effects of it. But I think when theologically we raise it to the level of God, we are making a profound mistake. That's my main point, I think. So, a couple other questions. Hi, my name's Kath. Um, I have just a couple of clarifications to make um, in terms of the assumptions that are driving what I understand your argument, and I might have misheard you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, The first is the definition of evil and whether the the traditional account of decay being introduced into the world as a result of our sin um, and that... That seems to be what you're refuting, that, that account, if I got you I right. I think it is greatly overplayed. I can clarify that in a moment, but just keep on, keep on going if you want. So, so one of the, the things I'm thinking about that is, um, is the, the issue here that you're trying to deal with the idea that if creation is subject to bondage as a result of a fall, so that the physical reality um, comes under God's judgment mm-hmm. as well as ourselves, mm-hmm. which is what the traditional idea of childbirth being painful, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the ground being cursed, mm-hmm. um, of Romans 8. Mm-hmm. I'll just read that verse to you. Mm-hmm. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us, for creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of mm-hmm. God. Good. So um, that's something that has informed our understanding of the Genesis story yes. as well. Um, it speaks of bondage and decay mm-hmm. and it appears to be that creation, the traditional understanding of that verse is that it's yeah. you know, brought under the curse yeah. um, um, so that it also will be released mm. into that glorious mm-hmm. new creation mm-hmm. on the last day. And that brings us to the subject of whether God's punishment and being subject to physical suffering as a result of God's punishment, temporal punishment, to call us back to him, mm-hmm. is itself evil. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether that's one of the assumptions right. that can get confused in this debate. Well, my gosh, uh, that is such a great set of questions and it's asking me to respond at length and I don't have time to respond at length. I will be coming back to certain aspects of the question you're asking in further sessions. So, for example, the nature of these curses, are they viewed biblically as fates or destinies that cannot be avoided? And I'm going to argue that biblically they're not regarded in that way. Um, That's later today, in fact. I will be talking about that. So, I think there's a, a problem with the way people have read the curses. They've read them in a Greek 
way as being like fate that cannot be avoided, whereas I think in Scripture they're presented as a path that you might well walk on, but you shouldn't. Number one. You don't think it's intrinsic to creation, the bondage and decay that's become I think a what part Paul of physical is, reality? What Paul is talking about in Romans 8, in my opinion, is the reality that when the image bearers are messed up, creation's inevitably messed up to some extent. And that's why creation waits expectantly for the redemption of the sons of God. Because when they are restored to their capacity to be image bearers, then they will be able to do their job in looking after creation. I don't believe that Scripture teaches that there are intrinsic, ongoing, unavoidable curses laid on physical creation independently of the whole question of governance, ruling, and subduing that human beings are called to. And I'll argue that out later on, so it might be better to leave that component of it till later, and we can certainly come back to it. Um, So I think Romans 8 is itself about relationships, really, essentially. Romans 8 is about creationist suffering because human beings who are called to actually govern it along with God are not doing their job because of sin. Um, And you're quite right. People do tend to read Genesis through the lens of Romans 8, which is, I think, unfortunate because I think that the typical view of Romans 8 is not quite accurate enough to do the job. And I think if you read Genesis 3 in the context of the Old Testament, you don't get that impression, which raises further questions about it. And then there's the whole question I raised last evening and mentioned this morning, I think, again, that Scripture generally does not give the impression that creation now is very different from creation back then. The Psalms don't give that impression. Uh, Natural phenomena in the Psalms are regarded as part of the good working of God's world for which we should praise and celebrate. Then we can add to that the scientific realities that, for example, moving tectonic plates are necessary in the world for our world to function as a place where creatures flourish. And given that they move, every so often they're going to bump up against each other and cause unfortunate consequences. But it's very hard to imagine the world we actually live in, this kind of world, functioning in a different way from that. And unless I had really compelling scriptural evidence to push me in that direction, I'd be disinclined to go that way. So to my mind, this whole question needs to be reframed, and we need to go back to these scriptures and ask the question, have we really rendered these in the best possible way? And I think part of the problem is that in cases, select cases we haven't, in the case of the childbirth thing, The vocabulary simply doesn't imply childbirth at all. And earlier translations like the King James Version don't translate that as involving birth pangs. Nor does the ancient translation of the Septuagint imply that. They go for a much more generalized language about sorrow and pain being built into the experience of bringing children into the world. So when you have the NIV just putting childbirth there, uh, that's, that's certainly a tradition of interpretation. I don't think it's a justifiable translation, though. 
of the Hebrew. What about curse the ground so that with toil you will um, bring forth the, the fruit of the ground? I promise I'll come back to that this afternoon because I'm going to address the general question of curses this afternoon. So um, it's a very fair question, but I think from an efficiency point of view, it would be better if I said a bit more and then we can come back to that. Okay? So what I suggest uh, is we've got plenty to think about over lunch um, and we've got more questions. I, I just want to throw one idea out there. Um, the way I like working with powerful ideas like this, Ian, are to let them absorb and rearrange my mind, which takes a bit of time, and then go back to, uh, to their implications. Um, uh, as I listened to your conversation with Kath and what you said about Romans 8, what struck me is the role of human beings is far more pivotal mm -hmm. uh, than the context in which we live. Mm -hmm. And it is the loss of uh, glory or uh, sin and uh, what that does, of course, is put us on a trajectory to Christ as the ultimate human being. Mm -hmm. Um, so as, as I listened, that's what I was taking away. The real problem is the guardians have lost their power and relationship Indeed. with God. And if I can just restate that briefly in a sentence to just try and get clarity in that point. I think that Scripture teaches us that God has chosen to relate to the rest of creation through our mediating influence. As we go, creation goes in general. And that image-bearing, subduing, having dominion stuff is crucial to the whole conversation. I don't think that God is dealing, as it were, independently with creation uh, in these uh, various ways. I think it's all bound up with the set of problems that evil brings to our relationships. That's my basic idea here. Yeah. So, Good. yeah. I will deal with anything if somebody asks me a question. Yeah, well, bring it, uh, perhaps when we get, if you're coming back next weekend, I know it's some spare time away, when we get to the subject of human beings and humanness, that would be a great context for that question. I'd be happy to respond to that, for sure. Okay, well, it's, uh, uh, what we've done is send out a, 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 an email to everybody that we're starting at two o'clock-ish, um, and uh, so... Let's uh, aim to do that. But when we come back, I promise you we might open up with a few more questions. Yeah, sure.